So a lot of times when I do impressions, they start to bleed and they all go toward Bill Clinton. Uh, The problem is the Bill Clinton impressions um, frequently involve bad behavior. So this is kind of a family (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Try to keep it that way. No problem. Welcome to Brilliant, the podcast about innovation, experience, and design. I'm your host, Justin Dobb. On this episode, we get some interesting impressions on ideation. Stay tuned. Uh, my name is Matt Phillips. I'm president of a firm called Phillips & Company. We are a 15-year-old innovation strategy firm based in Chicago. So I brought you in here today, Matt. We've worked together a number of times, and I want to bring you in here today to talk about one specific stage in the design thinking process. You've helped us with this over the years, and that's ideation. So how do you define ideation? Sure. Ideation is is basically uh, a fancy word for idea generation. Um, And if you Google it, you find all these psychological uh, things that talk about things that lead to uh, bad outcomes for patients. In, in the business world, ideation means, means idea generation, which is a larger bucket that brainstorming falls into. So sometimes ideation and brainstorming are, are seen as the same thing. Brainstorming goes back to the 60s. It's the basic idea of getting a group of people together and coming up with ideas, right? You might have a group of uh, seven or 10 people. Uh, this person's idea bounces off that one, and together we all come up with a better idea. Ideation, in my mind, is something larger than that. So brainstorming is one approach, getting a group of people into a room. But more broadly, there's other ways to do it. We can talk about some of those ways, but just off the cuff, you know, you could uh, do a blast email to your entire office and say, hey, how could we solve this? Uh, or you can go out and research and see how other industries have handled that same challenge. So uh, ideation or idea generation uh, is, is sort of the entire bucket of, of ways to uh, chase down your, your next big idea. Yeah, and interestingly, you use the word bucket because that's kind of the word I think of when I think of like traditional brainstorming, and it's like throwing everything you can into a bucket, and it's kind of undirected. And interestingly, it's one of those things that the um, best practices around brainstorming have changed quite a bit, I think, since at least I've started. I don't think everybody believes there are no bad ideas anymore, right? So you need (laughs) guardrails and you need structure. And I think that's one thing that when we talk about a formal ideation session, that there, there is a lot more directed activity and structure. And we always talk about the divergence and convergence. And can you give us a little understanding of the flow of a, a broader ideation session, what you're trying to accomplish? Sure. A great ideation session has structure and has planning. So there, there are certainly times at a cocktail party I mention that aspect of what we do. And people say, oh, I've been in a brainstorming session. They don't work. And so many don't. So I think a traditional brainstorming session that many people have uh, experienced is basically a meeting with better food. You bring in Oreos and Red Bulls or something. But uh, what a meeting looks like or a discussion looks like is one person has an idea and then people riff off of that single idea, which is fine, but that's kind of a meeting. So in a formal ideation session, you want to think about before, during, and after. So uh, before, there's a number of steps, but the principal one is just plan out the session. You know, truly think through in that half day or those three days, what are we going to do? And if you look at the entire challenge in aggregate, how can we break it into pieces so we're not just talking about one stream of consciousness for the entire period? So if we were uh, going to reinvent running shoes, for instance, you might break it into different parts. What's the aesthetic experience? What is the runner's experience? What do you know about emerging technology or uh, kind of healthcare needs people have? And then dive into each one of those individually. So putting structure around it is extremely useful. 
And then finally, at the back end, uh, hopefully in that first stage, in the pre, you were thinking through, what are we going to do with these ideas after the session? And many times, there was very little thought put to that. So when we work with our clients, uh, even in the first hour of working with them, one of our first questions is, what are you going to do when you have hundreds of ideas uh, coming out of the back of this? So through our process, we'll help them prioritize and figure out which ones of those might go into uh, a further innovation process. But beyond that, what what are their plans? Because many times, um, even well-funded, well-educated brand teams or marketing teams don't have an idea. So helping them structure that post period is uh, pretty important. Yeah, well, I would assume too, like we, you know, we started talking about uh, divergence and convergence. And divergence, of course, is taking this kernel of an idea and like blowing it out into all the different permutations all the different directions you can take it. And, you know, to your point, if you don't know what you're going to do with these ideas, when you get to the convergence stage of when you start to, like, one, merge ideas together or start to filter ideas through different structures to understand what you're going to do with them, without that understanding, everything's a good idea. Yeah, I think that's right. With regard to the convergence period, uh, you know, once you've gone through a process, you could have Depending on the length and the the depth of your session, you could have dozens of ideas. At times, we've had over a thousand ideas on a given topic, um, and we've used all kinds of different methods over the last fifteen years to figure out how do we take those ideas and bubble the best ones to the top. So uh, we've tried very sort of complicated methods where we put things into an algorithm and we score things based on seven criteria and we figure out which ones bubble to the top. Uh, we've done dot voting, which pretty much everyone knows the idea of getting those round, colorful garage sale stickers. You give everyone a set number of them. They walk around the room at the end of the session and dot their favorite dots, right. their favorite concepts. So ultimately, what we do in a, a project tends to vary uh, based on the project. So we don't have the one killer app. But I will say, having done hundreds and hundreds of sessions, we're leaning more and more over the years toward intuition. So less toward uh, let's take the engineering mindset and figure out exactly which one is 2% better than the other. Because as you know, if you've ever developed a new product, even at that point, no one has a clue what's going to work. Right. You can have a gut take, but the odds of picking the winner uh, you know, at the end of a session is very low. So, so oftentimes we just stand back and we go, which ones of these feel great and should go into a deeper consideration process down the road? Yeah, and we always try to look for, you know, in the beginning when we're setting our criteria for an ideation, we want to understand kind of what emotional outcomes we're, we're going to try for, right? So we want to um, find ideas that give someone more confidence in the task under uh, they're undertaking or in, you know, in themselves after purchasing X product. And so when, when um, we start to think about that emotion, you know, that's all you have at the end of the day is, is that gut instinct of whether <laughs> that thing you just ideated uh, satisfies that emotion. There's there's no accounting for it other than your own emotion. Yeah, I think that's smart. It's sort of the uh, begin w- or begin with the end in mind. Is that the idea? Well, begin with what the, they say. With yeah, begin with the uh, in this specific case the end emotional state that you're trying to fill, and hopefully it's one that you know through your exploration of the market and assaying all the competition that you understand that there's the white space, right? There's an emotional white space for this kind of product or this brand positioning or something um, that then how do you find the best way to express that, whether it's through product or a service design or, you know, material choices or anything like that, right? Can be anything. 
Yeah, and then, then the flip side, of course, is the need of the company or the client. And so at the end of the day, they want to solve emotional needs and functional needs, but they also need to be profitable and needs to ideally fit into some sort of overall, overall uh, architecture of other products or brands they have. So uh, trying to, to juggle all those things at those last moments uh, can be challenging. But again, that's where kind of intuition is, is so powerful. Just to step back and say, okay, this, boy, people would love this, but there's not a fantastic way to profit off this. And you've got to sort of uh, dance with both at the same time. Well, that's the classic IDEO Venn diagram, right? The feasible, desirable, and sustainable. So anything that is really an innovation has to satisfy all those things. You and I have both seen sessions where some participant is like, anti-gravity boots. (laughs) (laughs) I I have seen those. I've not seen the boots yet, but I've heard the idea. Yeah, and so uh, it's, it's, it's always important to have all of those things in mind. Otherwise, it's folly, right? Because it's really easy to come up with ideas that are impractical and, you know, fantastic. uh, And I mean that in the most absurd fashion. That's that's right. But to have, you know, a session where you're keeping all of those things in mind that, that, yes, someone might want this. Second, someone can actually make this thing. And more importantly, the company can make this thing and sell it at a profit. Right, right. So, so I'll give you an example. Uh, about uh, two or three years ago, we were hired by Paramount Pictures uh, to do just a really cool project. Uh, at the time, they were considering moving into the mega park business, so uh, becoming the third big brand against uh, Disney and Universal. So imagine building essentially brand new cities, uh, thing, things at the uh, scale of a small city, which would mean infrastructure, restaurants, hotels, um, rides, attractions of all kinds. And they hired us to come in and run a week-long ideation experience with uh, about 150 people who came in and out over the course of that week to imagine the theme park of the future. So that could be one long rambling week of ideas. Yeah, more like um, a marathon. A marathon, oh my gosh. It was, it was just a, a crazy experience, a little bit bigger than many of the things we do, which tend to have you know, 20, 25 people involved. Um, but it was on a soundstage at Paramount, uh, the same same soundstage where they filmed uh, Star Trek and Breakfast with Tiffany, and, um, and and so we we broke it down. So we asked, you know, what would the city of the future look like? What would uh, attractions of the future look like? Knowing what we know about technologies that are just coming out of the lab today. So if, if you take five days, the last day was about synthesis, uh, starting to plot those ideas. Uh, almost against a matrix. So these are ideas that are city ideas or infrastructure or things that have to do with kids or families, what have you. But uh, the the previous four days were about bringing experts and brainstormers and model makers in in, in a, a kind of a very precise uh, manner to essentially run small ideation sessions yeah. around different challenges within it. So so structure is so key on on uh, challenges of any kind. You've uh, mentioned you know something as large as a theme park. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the scale. You mentioned there are half-day sessions, there are week-long sessions. Um, Is there any correlation between the type of project you're working on, the scale of the ideation session, or do some product or service sectors lend themselves to different length ideation sessions, or how do you think about that? Uh, So so we always tell clients we don't have any off-the-shelf ideation session ready to go. Uh, many of them end up being a, a day to two days just because of the, the type of challenge we're working on. But we truly build it around the nature of the challenge. So uh, in, in kind of the, the sweet spot for many challenges, if we were working on 
uh, new kinds of dog food or uh, reinventing socks or something like that, it, it might be a day and a half. So the f uh, first uh, full day is essentially brainstorming. We break it into pieces. Uh, uh, we can talk about the different methods we use, but uh, kind of really try to get every single idea out of the group possible. Let everyone sleep on it. And then the next morning, do a final push of brainstorming and then do some analysis. So uh, there will be deeper analysis after that day and a half that might happen over the next week. But we want to do a first cut just to, uh, again, read the feelings of those in the room, many of whom are joining us only for the day and a half. So we want them not only for their ideas, but their evaluation abilities. Because uh, many times in a session, the magic is not necessarily the idea, but it's someone saying, that's important. And so many times, uh, some of the most impactful ideas we've helped companies come up with are ideas they already had, or, or we tweak them slightly. Yeah. But what changed was someone came in or someone in the group said, you know what, that is actually a big idea. The idea we've been sitting on for decades is, yeah. is a big idea. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to kind of uh, group design, which has a huge factor on whether these sessions are successful. I know it's not the deciding factor, right? Because there's, you know, everything matters. The research you do, the kind of definition of the problem ahead of time, all these things matter. But the people you get in the room, right, are the gold. Um, what's your stance on whether you want to bring in actual customers, right, into these kind of a, maybe maybe a co-creation ideation session? Do you, do you want them or do you want, you know, because the cliche is customers can't tell you what they want. Right. So do you just stick to experts, people who work within the company, consultants like us? What, what's your feeling on that? So I'll give you the best consultant uh, university professor answer, which is it depends. Um, <laughs> in in gen general, I would say the majority of our sessions are sessions where we do not have consumers or customers in the room. So w what we've we've learned is that in most cases, uh, extracting the the needs and the insights and the jobs to be done from customers or consumers is best done up front. Right. So so do that in a very focused, meaningful way. So then we know what the problems are, and that becomes kind of the backbone of the session. So that said, there are some where we bring customers in. We, we have a, a handful of clients, especially in um, B2B industrial spaces, where they have used our sessions to check off a couple of boxes at once. So the one is uh, ideation. Kind of what, what can we do in terms of new business model or new products uh, down the road? But on top of that, they've used the sessions as brand building moments. So uh, in many uh, companies, it's not often they actually get to spend time face-to-face -face outside of a trade show or that one visit they make to the uh, customer site per year. So we will use uh, an ideation session or a larger innovation summit as that moment. So they bring in customers, we brainstorm with them, they let them do a plant tour. We might bring in uh, outside experts and just make it an overall sort of innovation experience for these customers. So I think if you're, if you're planning a session of any kind, all the way at the beginning, you've got to ask, what are our goals? Is it just about coming up with ideas? Is this a brand building moment? Are we actually trying to educate people about our brand? Is there some component of it that's just team building? Um, so, so a session like this can, can check off uh, a number of different boxes. Really, when you break that down, you think about it, the, the brand building side of it, the cost per thousand uh, is massive. <laughs> yes. This, yeah, I, I would not recommend it as a marketing tactic. No. <laughs> so you've mentioned a lot of different types of ideation and product categories, and I'm going to preface this next question with an understanding between us that 
there are no bad products or sectors to work on, whether it's, you know, industrial B2B, consumer packaged goods. You know, there's a fascinating angle to all of these and there's there's creative work to be done. What I'm curious about is like, what is the range of stuff that you've worked on and like what seems, you know, and the face of it maybe to be the most absurd and we can understand that, you know, you can't always judge a book by its absurdity. <laughs> so, uh, so we've been fortunate in the last 15 years to work across, uh, I don't know, probably 20 or 25 industries. Uh, so for Dell and Wells Fargo, uh, recently we've done, done a lot of work for Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, which is fantastic. Uh, Pella and L Brands. L Brands is uh, Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secret. Um, and then uh, we, we've even done work for the TSA, specifically working on the airport security experience. So if you've, <laughs> well, I'm I don't know sorry if you, I don't, that. Yeah, I don't know if you've flown recently, Justin, but we, we solved is is so, we, oh, that's we, we put that in the solve bucket. Well, I try to get the pat down every time. Uh, that's right. Yeah, we 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 put your name in. Um, so. Yeah, we've worked across uh, industries, and uh, so I will say, I, th- I think in general, the the mindset you need to solve a challenge is more alike than you would think. So uh, in the course of one week, we might work on uh, fundraising for a nonprofit, uh, helping them create new fundraising strategies, and then um, uh, developing new products for an industrial uh, provider. And uh, you know, overall, we uh, don't claim to be subject matter experts in any one of these categories. Although we've come to know a lot about hotels and uh, the aviation industry and and uh, consumer packaged goods and others. But yeah, process works. So if you if you know the right levers to pull, the right people to pull into a session and what have you, uh, it 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 you know things things come together. Yeah, you talked about knowing the right levers to pull, and we've had a lot of inquiry lately from enterprise level companies and you know kind of larger corporate clients on how do they learn to do design thinking and so what would you say are good resources for someone who's just trying to figure this out uh well uh, so i'll I'll reformat your question a little bit so uh, a number of years ago we had the the same inquiries where people um you know the the design world knew about design thinking and then five or seven years later the corporate world heard about it and i think that uh, the current wave, um, kind of building on top of design thinking, even is is lean innovation. Right. So, um, so one one great way to learn it is uh, we we teach a, a full day uh, course on it. Uh, plug, um, but uh, <laughs> that would be Philipsandco.com. Co. Yeah, Philips-co.com. Uh, if 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 you're looking. Um, but uh, you know the go-to book on on lean innovation and definitely touches on uh, large aspects of design thinking uh, is the Lean Startup by Eric Ries. So uh, if you if you want to start somewhere to start to understand that world, that's it. And, and the basic idea there is uh, to look at the ways that startups innovate. And they tend to be quick and nimble versus uh, going through a long stage gate type process yep. like many companies do. What do you think the advantage is, right, of, of accelerating the process versus taking those stage gate approaches that some of the larger companies do? Yeah, so, so stage gate is, um, I'll, I'll start with that. The reason it exists is because in, in the manufacturing world, you don't want to create something that's going to cause safety problems or, or a huge recall. So stage gate, uh, if the listeners aren't familiar with it, is the idea of going through stages and gates. So stage one might be uh, to generate ideas, then you go to a gate where everyone evaluates it and they say, okay, which of these ideas should go through? In the next stage, you might uh, evaluate it further to make sure it's profitable, and it could go through uh, 5, 10, 15 stages and gates. 
So the upside of that is you're very thorough. You've got subject matter ex- uh, subject matter experts coming in and looking at things and making sure you're not messing something up. Yep. The downside is that can take a year and a half. And meanwhile, uh, two people in their basement or the garage have cranked out the next new product. So the, the mindset behind um, lean innovation and the lean startup is just the opposite. We are going to skip all the stages and gates. Uh, we will come up with an idea and maybe that afternoon make a prototype and go show it to people instantly. And the brilliance behind that is if the idea you have, the product or the service or the brand is a stinker, you find out right away. Right. And so that afternoon, people say, I wouldn't buy that. What if I made it? What if I fixed it this way? Still wouldn't buy it. You've just saved 18 months of uh, pain and agony going through StageGate. Overall, I think that's why corporate America is slowly starting to understand the benefit of it. Yeah. Um, I think the challenge then is figuring out how do you then fit that into a hierarchical system that is used to StageGate and used to a lot of approvals and, and review processes. As you were speaking about that, what popped into my head was Apple, right? So they're probably the StageGate side of the equation. They are not uh, an early adopter or fast innovator. Um, they are definitely the highly intricate laggard. Um, I wish I had the perfect <laughs> phrase for that. But, um, you know, so I, I would say that there are definitely pluses and minuses to each of these things. And, you know, when you look at, you know, the largest corporation in the world has managed to be you know, highly profitable doing the latter, you know, whatever you choose, you've got to be structured properly to take advantage of it. That's right. And, and, and even in the case of Apple, they, they don't launch things that are half-baked, clearly. They've put tons of thought into it. In the case of the iPhone, five or ten years of, of R&D before it launched. Um, but they have a dedicated uh, innovation lab yep. where they are constantly making prototypes. So uh, in the course of the day, they may make m- multiple prototypes, huddle up, quickly evaluate it, see if they need outside experts to come in. Uh, and people think they all work in this uh, you know, seal-tight room. They bring in all kinds of people from the outside and then uh, iterate until they have something beautiful. So, so I think Apple does uh, a bit of each. You know, they've, they have what many companies don't have, which is they have an incredibly well-staffed, dedicated innovation team that's just there to iterate and, and innovate. And, and, and I can tell you, having worked with, uh, you know, 100-plus companies uh, on sort of a deep level, what's fascinating is, uh, without giving away any specific details about uh, any one company, after we sign the NDA and we're, we are allowed to see everything that a company is working on. Uh, we get to see their innovation team and their entire existing pipeline of new products. So we're, we're sure we're not reinventing what they're already working on. Uh, the, the secret or the reality of many big companies is they don't have a lot going on. <laughs> so you would think Brand X, this, this brand that everyone buys at the grocery store, or we all go into their beautiful flagship stores, they have this massive backlog of a huge pipeline of awesome new things. And many times when they show us, there's like three things. And, th- and that's why they've hired us, clearly. Um, but, uh, but I think this, it's, it's tough work. And uh, so, so if you don't have a massive pipeline, you are normal. Most of uh, the work that we're seeing now is really about future casting and envisioning to give the people in R&D kind of that goalpost. Um, because a lot of engineers are out there, you know, working on incremental improvements, right? And they're not, their day-to-day is refining a process, maybe exploring, you know, materials changes to make production more efficient or the product last longer. 
and, and that, that kind of work is wildly important, but it doesn't lead to, like you're saying, the 800-page parchment book of the future. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think the, 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 um, that entire process, the idea of sort of, uh, I've heard it called time traveling forward. So imagining the future state of your company in different ways, uh, for some people, is extremely difficult. But if you can get people there through uh, narrative-based work, which I know you guys do, uh, or other methods, um, and have them hang out there for a while, which may not just be a session, it might be uh, a process you take through people through over the course of weeks or months to help them envision what that future could look like. Um, having them then adopt new ideas becomes much easier. Yeah, and um, I think you know the other cliche is that the best way to be wrong is to try to predict the future, and I don't <laughs> think that's what we're talking about. It really is taking all these trends and everything we know what the trajectory of populations are and where their technology roadmaps are already pointing them. They just don't realize sometimes where those could take them. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so I'll tell, tell you a story. Um, about uh, five or six years ago, we were hired to invent a new luxury hotel brand. So this was a, a mid-sized hotel company that we'd done work for before. We had created a couple of other hotel brands with them. And they said um, they had always been a mid-tier uh, player. So think, think about someone like uh, Hilton Garden Inn, something at that level. So they had done very well building up uh, brands at that level and then selling them off to the Marriott's of the world. So uh, they had sold off their most recent brand, came to us and said, could you help us invent a new brand? But this time it will be in the luxury space. So we spent months with them doing uh, ideation, strategy, developed the name for the brand, uh, mapped out the entire experience, and, uh, and we're at a final workshop where we're sort of putting the, the cherry on the, the cake. Uh, are there cherries on cakes? Pie? Uh, uh, cupcakes? Cherry, cherry on the, yeah, the cherry. something. Uh, putting Sundays a, have a the cherry Sunday, on top. Yeah, cherry on the brand concept. And we're sitting around the table at the dinner that night, and the CFO says, uh, Matt, I've got to tell you, we have really enjoyed this process over the last few months. What we've created is amazing. I don't think we're going to do it, but I just want to tell you, <laughs> we really enjoyed this. And, and you know, I, I about flipped out. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, you know what? I just personally can't get my head around charging people luxury rates and charging, you know, $400, $500 a night. We're just not those people, so I think we're going to, you know, have to scrap this and do something else. And so you started uh, your own hotel chain. I, I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I circle up with the CMO, who is our day-to-day -day contact, and I said, you know, is there really resistance? And she said, well, I've, we've not fully shared it, but yeah, there's part of the management team and board that is just very afraid of doing this new thing. So th this is one of the biggest lessons we've learned in the last uh, 10 years, that you can get to an idea, but you also have to get people to accept it, right? Duh. So in this case, what we did was we took the CFO who was resistant, and that night literally went out in the lobby and booked him into, we were, the session was here in Chicago, uh, and there's a, a really beautiful boutique hotel called The James. Mm -hmm. We booked him into The James. So The James might be, I don't know, 350 a night, but it's a nice boutique luxury experience kind of on par with what we had created. And uh, sadly, there was a medical convention, so it was $800 <laughs> a night. And he's a CFO, so he's going to find out. <laughs> but uh, So we book him in, and the next morning, he's normally very punctual, and he comes down to breakfast to meet the entire group late. 
we said, hey, what happened? He goes, you know what? I got up to get a cup of coffee. I went down to the lobby and it was like a nightclub. He goes, I probably counted, you know, $5,000 worth of drink sales right in front of me. And he goes, I'll tell you one thing, we're building one of these. <laughs> it's like his own personal ethnography. Yes, yes. So, uh, so many times in working on these projects, we think not only just about the brainstorming session or kind of how we come up with the idea, but once we get there, to your point about sort of thinking about the future, what do we have to do to shape the hearts and minds of the team that has to run forward with it and perhaps ask for funding or continue to push through barriers to get them to say, this is something that we believe in and we're going to do. And, and many times that's the bigger challenge. And I'm going to even flip it back to the beginning of the process, right? And the same rules apply. What do you need to do? What kind of upfront information, research, do you think leads to having the right kind of focus in one of these sessions? Because had the CFO stayed at the James prior to the session, would he have, one, been bought in to the fact that this is probably something they might want to try? And, and would he have conducted himself differently within the sessions, right? Would he have been thinking different uh, about different opportunities? And, you know, what do you think sets up a good session from that experiential standpoint or just research and how much is too much, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think at the beginning, when we first meet with a client, or if you're even doing this internally and you're leading an innovation process, you want to get your arms around a little bit of everything. So what do we know about the end customer or consumer? What have we tried in the past? What is our overall bias? So do we tend to continue to look at services and not products or just one little niche of the products, knowing that there are many ways to innovate, right? Business model and pricing and uh, trademarks and what have you. So, so up front, we try to get a, a general sense of what has happened um, and, and understand the barriers in the past. And sometimes this may happen over the course of a couple of meetings because no one wants to lose face. Um, you know, some of the magic of what we do is the hallway conversation or the quick meetup at Starbucks that's outside of some big formal presentation because we're trying to get our arms around not just what is the consumer need that we can go solve for, but what is it about the team that has kept them from doing that themselves? So I'll give you one crazy example. So uh, w one uh, company we've done work for makes industrial plumbing parts. So if you get your, uh, if you don't pay your water bill and they shut off your water, they're probably turning off the valve that this company made, right? Oh, great. Yes. So, so if that happens, you can, you can think of us. So we, we sat down with them when we were first hired. In the first meeting, uh, we said, hey, can you tell us about the last few big innovations in your industry, whether they're product or something else? And it took them a minute or two, and they finally said, you know what? It was this one ball valve in the late 1960s. That was the last big game changer. Wow. And <laughs> I mean, we've worked in high tech where the, the last game-changing idea happened on Tuesday, right? Right. So we asked, why? And they said, well, the reason is if you are going to make waterworks parts that uh, someone who runs a municipality is going to bury, that person is burying something for 100 years. So they do not want cool new widgets. They'll come look at them, but they do not want to bury a problem that their predecessor will inherit. So the idea of uh, in inventing new products in their industry is tough, and that is what they had hired us to do. So they, <laughs> so they said, with that setup, help us come up with a new line of uh, products. So uh, so just understanding that was, was hugely useful. So even in that first meeting, the seed we planted, and it took a while to get there uh, with them, was we said, you know, there are at least a dozen ways to innovate, and product is one. 
So right. we'll work on product, but would you allow us to work on other things like uh, business model and, and brand meaning and that sort of thing? So if you fast forward about six months, the big uh, blockbuster innovation, they, they had five that eventually went to market from that first project with them. But the one blockbuster was essentially a marketing concept. Uh, and it came out of one of the sessions we did with them, and it was a concept that had come from a parallel industry and hadn't been used in 30 years. Wow. So that kind of insight up front, knowing that creating a new product was going to be challenging, was fantastic because then we built the entire ideation session uh, slightly around products, but more so around other areas that we knew would be easier to innovate in. So how much research do you provide participants? Maybe I'm assuming, you know, I'm not assuming I know because we've worked together. We'll bring in subject matter experts and people who are not, you know, industry veterans. They might be veterans in their own industry and have adjacent expertise. How much do you want to give them? What's a good level of immersion for someone to come in and help out for two days? Sure. So in uh, uh, most ideation sessions, you have a mix of internal and external people. Um, Many times, uh, if if you're running them internally, it may uh, default to just being those from different parts or different uh, divisions of your company. But if if we're hired to to run a professional session, as you mentioned, uh, we have what we call the expert ideator network. It's over 250 people that we've vetted and have uh, actually worked with over the last 15 years. Um, and they're a mix of NASA engineers and playwrights. We just added a, a magician from Canada who's this prolific uh, magic uh, inventor uh, who will then bring in on non-magical things. So, um, so to your point, we have people from inside and outside. So what we will often send them before the session is uh, pretty concise. We, we want everyone to really know what the challenge is and what the constraints are before they walk in the door. In many sessions uh, that we've heard about, uh, they can spend the first hour just debating what the challenge is. Is this in? Is that out? What do we know about the consumer? We want everyone to know all that uh, two weeks out. So we tell them, here's what we're working on. Here's what we're not working on. Here's how we've broken the challenge down. And maybe in a handful of pages, here's what we know about the consumer. So we have tried sending uh, the 70-page gigantic uh, segmentation study, yep. and 0% of people read it, except for the person who did the segmentation study. <laughs> they reread the entire thing uh, with popcorn. But, uh, but yeah, I think the, the idea is to distill down what people really need to know, uh, because if you bog them down too much, they will start grabbing on the details, and they become less creative. So you want to give them enough that they're, they're uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, deadly, but uh, uh, then let them go and play. Right on. And the kind of final uh, thing that I want to ask you about and the kind of the perfunctory details of how these things work. You know, you have two full days. How much of that time is actually intense work versus, you know, you talked about these hallway moments? Because I think it's really important to talk about that uh, and to make sure that people understand that that, uh, there are ups and downs in intensity in these things and that, you know, you can't do a full-out sprint for two days straight and expect you're going to get more or better ideas. Yeah, that's right. One of the things we're always thinking through is the balance between uh, squeezing ideas out of people and the experience they're going through. So, you know, uh, oddly, one of the things that will happen a couple months down the road is the ideas that come from the session will be tied to the experience of the session. 
So if it was a painful experience, they're less likely to love those ideas. Right. We want the entire experience to have this warm glow so that when people leave, they go, oh my gosh, I bonded with people, I met people, we came up with incredible ideas, um, and it was just a great experience. So, uh, so again, we custom build everything, but we try to think of it uh, almost like um, a, a movie or a play, where up front we have energy, we have moments of quiet, where individuals or smaller teams can go and work. We have times where the entire group works together, um, and then we try to end days on kind of a triumphant high. But I, but I think you're right. If it's one note, if you continue to do breakouts every 30 minutes, uh, or I've, I've heard of firms that do breakouts every seven minutes, which, wow. I, which I cannot wrap my head around. <laughs> Like, please, innovate, come back, innovate again. <laughs> um, you know, I think you need to, to mix it up. If, if you went and saw a play that had seven-minute acts for, uh, for, for eight hours, I think it would be rough. But you could go to an eight-hour play if it, uh, you know, had, had a lot of interactivity and, um, and ups and downs to it. Yeah. So, so, was, so I think was, you're exactly right. What was that, uh, as I take a tangent, too much light makes the baby go blind. Yes. Remember this? Yes. So that's were still they, here in Chicago. Are they 60 seconds? Is that what they are? I think so, yeah. So if you're not from Chicago, come to Chicago and check this out. But yeah, it's uh, what, like an hour and a half show? And they do, I don't know what, like 160 second acts. And they could not be more apples and oranges. And it's like you've got like the, the gripping, crazy political one, then the ridiculous, uh, silly one. So yes, that's yeah. exactly it. And I've gone back in time. I haven't thought about that for 18 years. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the last time I was there. But I think it's still there. So when you think about this process, this is your speed round. So what's the biggest change since you've started? And where do you think it's going to change going forward? I mean, we have a lot of technologies coming on that might facilitate this. So go. Yeah, I think the biggest change in the last um, number of years we've been doing it has been that people... Uh, have a lot more brainstorming experience coming in the door. So um, so a decade and a half ago, for some people, that might have been their first time they ever brainstormed. And now, uh, with the rise of uh, kind of innovation as, as a college major and design thinking and other things, people now understand the concept, which is, which is useful. Um, you know, I, I, I think in the future, it, it's quite likely that technology will continue to grow. There are all kinds of platforms out there to let uh, entire companies uh, innovate together. Uh, IBM famously has done something called an Idea Jam, where they'll open it up to tens of thousands of people to brainstorm together over the internet. Um, and they come up with cat videos? They do, uh, in gravity boots, mostly. That's <laughs> pretty much what they've come up with. So so I think technology can be good. The, the best ideas that we um, have seen come from our process over the years came from human beings. So I think technology uh, can be an accelerator to that. But ultimately, um, you know, if, if you want a brand or a service or a product to connect with people, it's got to connect on a human level. And uh, as far as I can tell, that still takes humans to create. Do you let people bring their personal devices into these ideation sessions? I mean, how is that affected? And what do you, what's your, do you have a policy on that? We, uh, you know, oddly at the beginning, we, we might say turn off the ringer, but that's it. So, so what we found is we run sessions in such kind of a high energy, active way that people don't tend to have that phone under the table moment. And at times, phones are useful. So if you're starting to dig into a concept and you're thinking, all right, how can, this, how can we do this? Or if we're stealing an idea from another industry, what does their solution look like? A phone can be a great thing. So if, if we catch people just on 
WhatsApp all day. We'll come over and have a chat with them. And we've had some crazy interesting people over the years. For, for the most part, we find that if you set it up and you make it uh, a really special, important, strategic day, people uh, devote themselves to it pretty easily. All right. And if you could tell people one thing they should steal from you process-wise, what should they steal? What should they steal? So, so I did mention the idea of structure. That is uh, far and away the most important thing. Uh, and seems to be the biggest aha when we first start working with someone. Uh, but I would say the other thing you could steal would be music. So uh, one thing that clients uh, mention to us that they that shocks them is that we use music almost like you would in, in a play or a musical. So when you come into the room, there's music. Uh, in between lulls, there's music. And, uh, you know, it, 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 we think of it like uh, an experience. So we're, um, you know, we're a team of uh, of, uh, of MBAs and designers, so we're very business-minded, but at the same time, we want it to be a good experience. And, and if you're enjoying yourself and you're keeping the energy up, people will, will devote themselves to it. So yeah, I would say get some good music. That's, that's my big tip. Well, you know I'm a fan. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think people should know about ideation? The other thing I would say is the best people in a session, or if you want to make yourself one of those best people, it is uh, just to know a lot of different things. So the best people that we um, have in our session, uh, uh, I believe it was IDEO, talked about T-shaped people. So people who, if you imagine a, a capital T with that top bar, they have a very wide breadth of knowledge of lots of different things. They probably know about darts, they know about sports, and they know about baking. But then they have one or two really deep areas. So that's the vertical part of the T. Yeah. So if you want to make yourself a T-shaped person, uh, try to find ways to learn about things you don't know. And, and, you know, probably the world of podcasts is the best play to, place to go. Where Indeed. There's so many th- things you can listen to, and some uh, podcast interviewers uh, do a great job of bringing in people not just on one topic, but on a huge range of topics. And uh, and I can't tell you how many times those little bits of uh, nuggets of, of knowledge from another world have come in to be useful in a session. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thanks, Matt, for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. And uh, is there one last impression you want to leave people with? Um, we were doing our Sean Connery. We were, in fact, doing Sean Connery. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. I believe you have Clint Schultz to make a different impression. Well, and uh, I think we both do a pretty good Bill Clinton, as yeah. I recall. But like I said, I can't, I can't uh, say anything that Bill would say that's funny. Uh, well, I'll leave you with Kermit the Frog, and um, thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, I got no Kermit. Good job. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Justin. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Brilliant is produced by Mignani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. To learn more, go to magnani.com. <laughs>